This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierosa is continuing his preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're in the middle of chapter 10. When Jesus called his disciples, it's not obvious what they thought their new life was going to be like. But Jesus knew, and he made it clear to them that his followers would encounter hardship and conflict when they began to proclaim the kingdom of heaven. That hardship wasn't exclusive to them or the early church. Christians everywhere, in every age, including today, face conflict for faithfully following Christ. But there is comfort and hope as well. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. Let's see what Jesus has to say concerning the matter of the dangers of ministerial faithfulness. And by the way, I'm not referring to pastors and deacons and elders only. If you are a believer in Christ, if you are a born-again member of the kingdom of heaven, you are a minister of God. You have many things to do. For example, you are to imitate Christ, and you are to make disciples of every nation. Therefore, you are a minister, maybe not from the pulpit, but you are a minister. And let's see what Jesus has to say. He's addressing the 12 disciples who became apostles. Verses 16 through 23 of Matthew 10, he says this, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how you are to say and what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved." But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. So here we have it, church, the menace of kingdom proclamation, the dangers of ministerial faithfulness. But did you notice here there's a lot of hope for us in here? I want to talk to you today, then based on the words of Jesus, about the prognosis and the particularities of kingdom proclamation. So let's look at the prognosis, verses 16 through 20. Jesus is addressing the 12 disciples who he then appointed as apostles, but the truth that he's speaking here transcends generations. It goes beyond their time, and I will demonstrate that to you based on the text. So stay tuned. When messengers of the kingdom of heaven obey Christ faithfully, and I'm referring to messengers of the kingdom of heaven, both in that generation and in our generation, in other words, you and me, we are messengers of the kingdom of heaven because we are commissioned to proclaim to people that Christ saves and still welcomes people in his kingdom. When we obey faithfully, we will encounter two opposite forces. First of all, according to verses 16 through 18, hardship awaits. 
That is the reality of the Word of God. Hardship awaits. Again, the Bible doesn't sugarcoat the realities of ministerial faithfulness. And by mentioning four animals, Jesus illustrates his warning to the disciples about the hardship of ministry. Did you notice here there are two parallel illustrations of two different sets of animals, serpents and doves and sheep and wolves? Now, the image of sheep speaks of vulnerability, helplessness, and gentleness. Now, I'm not a farmer, but I know that sheep get lost easily. They panic, they stampede at the slight sign of danger. Now, imagine then placing 12 of those vulnerable, helpless, gentle animals in the middle of predators, in a pack of wolves. And that is the exact picture Jesus wants us to understand. He is placing the disciples and he's placing us in the midst of wolves. But church, he can do that because he has superior shepherding skills. He can shepherd us from a distance. He does that from his throne and through under shepherds. This is how, therefore, Jesus gives them a picture of divinely ordained and divinely controlled danger. He is sending the disciples on a dangerous mission. They would have understood exactly what Jesus is talking about because the Bible is full of imagery concerning sheep. For example, Psalm 23, verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But check this out. Because of the onslaught, the apostles, the disciples turned into apostles, would have been tempted to retaliate, to respond in being overly defensive against persecutors. Well, that is the reason why later Paul addresses Timothy again. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, including persecutors, including the people who will slander, accuse, discourage, and persecute believers. So, That is why Jesus includes the image of a dove here. You are not to retaliate, but rather you are to act as a dove. In other words, as a lowly, gentle, humble, pure, peaceful servant. That is what the image communicates and illustrates. And we are to follow the same pattern. Now, in the meantime, in the same time, rather, the mission of the apostles required wisdom and discernment. That's the illustration of a serpent, which has nothing to do with satanic craftiness. So forget the image of the, of the serpent in the Garden of Eden at this point. That's the limit of that illustration here, because Jesus is using that same illustration in a different context now. We are to be shrewd, wise, discerning as serpents. The imagery speaks of attentiveness, of prayerful vigilance and prudence in movement. So we can summarize then Jesus' instructions to the disciples, something like this, if you'll allow me to paraphrase. Don't look for trouble, because trouble will find you. And that's true, church. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you don't need to go out looking for fights. The fight will follow you. If you merely claim to believe this book, all hell will break loose against you. So what he's saying here is don't look for trouble, because trouble will find you. It's not a matter of if, but when. And when hardship comes, don't retaliate against your persecutor or against people who speak evil of you. Embrace the reality of the hardship of ministry. Hardship awaits. Look at verse 17. He's using illustrations of animals here. Again, mundane applications that people would understand. But now in verse 17... To strengthen his command, he speaks literally. In other words, Jesus says, in case you didn't get the illustration, I'm talking about people. He says in verse 17, beware of men. Beware of people who will persecute you. Now, obviously, he has in mind the people he mentions later on here in the following verses. But what he's doing here is he's prescribing alertness. 
to the disciples and obviously to every messenger of the kingdom of heaven against people both on the political and the religious realm. How do we know that? Because he mentions the courts and the synagogues, the religious realm and the political realm because the activities of the disciples, the messengers of the kingdom of heaven would arouse suspicion both from the Romans and the Jews. This would not happen until the end of Jesus' earthly ministry here and after his resurrection. None of the disciples suffered any type of persecution to this level until after Jesus Christ died and rose and went to heaven. So he's preparing them for post-resurrection ministry. Now, look at verse 18. An interesting fact here. Even though the disciples were to focus on the lost sheep of Israel, you remember verse 6 when Jesus sent them and said, focus on the lost sheep of Israel. But now in verse 18, he's saying, you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. In other words, Jesus is again given plenty of evidence that he cares deeply for the Gentiles as well. He desires the salvation of Gentiles too. And the messengers of the kingdom of heaven would be a testimony both to the Jews, but later on their ministry would be a testimony to Gentiles. Now, church, we have a similar mission today. Even though we don't need to focus our missionary efforts to Jews only, but we are to go to the nations, and we don't, certainly don't perform signs and wonders. Those are not necessary for now for gospel proclamation. We must embrace the timeless truth that Jesus communicates here. Faithfulness to Christ invites hardship, particularly in the form of opposition. And like he did with the disciples, Christ has not sent us on a vacation church. We have work to do. He stationed us in dangerous places, which require the vigilance and shrewdness of a serpent and the gentleness and humility of a dove. Hardship awaits for the faithful follower of Christ, but I want you to know the contrast here in verses 19 through 20. Even though hardship awaits, hope assures. Jesus now comforts the disciples by letting them know that he will give them wisdom on how to deal with persecution, even on what to say, how to testify before courts. He promises them that the Holy Spirit will give them exactly what to speak. Why? Because the Holy Spirit will live inside them. That is the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit, something that happened only after Acts 2. If you are a believer in Christ today, you have the permanent presence of the Holy Spirit in you. And that's what Jesus promised in Acts 1 verse 8. According to Luke, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses in both Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and as far as the remotest part of the earth. Now, here's an example of that power. When ordered to stop teaching in the name of Christ, Peter and John answered some religious leaders, according to Acts 4, verses 19 through 20, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, make your own judgment, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Again, remember, one of these guys denied Christ not long before that, three times. And now, empowered by the Holy Spirit, based on that promise that Jesus Christ gave him, he says, you can kill me if you want to, but I cannot stop speaking about what I have seen and heard. Why? Because I have been commissioned to do that. And church, the same is true for you and for me. On the power of the Holy Spirit, we say, I cannot stop speaking about Christ. Why? Because he has commissioned me to do that. And that is the power of the Holy Spirit. I am a witness of Christ and so are you if you are a believer in Christ. And the Holy Spirit that lives in you will empower you and equip you. And that is the hope that we have. God in you, the hope of glory. 
Furthermore, some of these guys here to whom Jesus was speaking recorded scripture by divine inspiration, by the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Peter says, 2 Peter 1 verse 21. No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. And he was one of these guys because of the promise of Jesus Christ, the assurance, the hope that they would have. Even though ministry will be hard, there will be plenty of hope for you to continue with the mission. And the same Holy Spirit, church, that equipped them, equips you and me today because we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. If you are a born-again believer in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit in you. You don't have portions of the Holy Spirit. You don't need a second blessing from the Holy Spirit. We have all the blessings from the Holy Spirit already in you. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, meaning we were placed into the church. We were placed into the body of Christ, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit The image here is the Holy Spirit is now in us at the moment of our salvation. Therefore, we have the same promise here, church, of being empowered to do ministry. Even though God is sending us as sheep in the midst of wolves, we have the Holy Spirit in us who will equip us in what to say and how to respond to the hardship of ministry. The very presence of God in us gives us hope on how to navigate the dangers of faithfulness to Christ. However, One point of clarification here, we shouldn't be lazy and not prepare on what to say. Like the pastor I heard about one time who would never prepare his sermons on Sunday mornings because he would say, well, the Holy Spirit will give me what to say. Well, how about the Holy Spirit will prepare you during the week so that you have something to say on Sunday morning? Now, remember, we are to be vigilant and we should study and prepare. We should memorize scripture. Then the Holy Spirit will give us wisdom on how to say when needed. But we need to be proactively waiting on him. So that's the prognosis concerning ministerial faithfulness and concerning the message of the kingdom of heaven. But let's talk about the particularity of kingdom proclamation, verses 21 through 23. Again, Jesus introduces more truths concerning the dangers associated with faithfulness, ministerial faithfulness. And again, let me remind you, don't think you're saying, well, I don't need to be faithful because I'm not a minister. Well, you may not have the title, but if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a minister of God because he expects you to represent him in a world that doesn't know him. When messengers of the kingdom of heaven obey Christ faithfully, and that includes you and me, we will encounter two more opposites here. And the first one, according to verses 21 and the first half of verse 22, conflict abounds. Not only hardship, but conflict. There will be conflict, my friend, when you engage in faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Again, merely claiming you believe this book will cause conflict. Imagine when you tell people what the book says. And that is the reality of messengers and ministers of the kingdom of heaven. Now, the apostles' ministry of soul harvesting featured conflict, obviously. Why? Because households would have been divided about the origin and truthfulness of their message. That is a reality today as well. That is why Jesus speaks of betrayal, death, and hatred. Again, do you see how relevant the word of God is? That is a reality in many parts of the country, in many parts of the world, and for many people even. This very thing that Jesus is talking about, a brother against brother, sister against sister, a husband against wife, and parents against children, the conflict within the household because of faithfulness to Jesus Christ. It's not uncommon for an unsaved family member to accuse the believers in that family of ruining Sunday morning plans, ruining golf, 
on Sunday morning, breaking family traditions, killing the fun in a marriage, and loving Christ more than their families. You may be called a fanatic if you are the only saved person in the house. That's conflict based on faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Conflict abounds. You may be called a fundamentalist, even though people have no idea what that means. I, I, I'm proud to be called a fundamentalist because I believe in the fundamentals of the faith. That's what the term originally means. And people started to use that term now as a pejorative for the purpose of offending. But what that means is that we believe in the fundamental truths of the Word of God. So even though conflict abounds in the life of a faithful believer, I want you to know, church, that comfort abides. Even though conflict abounds, comfort abides. Let's look at the second half of verse 22 and verse 23. Jesus now contrasts the prediction of conflict with the promise of comfort. You see, the prediction of conflict now with the promise of comfort. He encourages the disciples to endure hardship and hatred on the promise of deliverance. This is what he means by that in verse, the second half of verse 22, when it says, You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Now, that does not mean, church, that salvation comes by enduring hardship, because there are many people who endure hardship for the wrong reasons, and they're never saved. That's not what this means. He's referring to deliverance, deliverance from persecution. Because when we die, when we go to heaven, there is no persecution. By killing a believer, you're sending them to heaven. And that's, that's what it says. You endure until the end, you will be delivered, meaning you will now enjoy eternity persecution-free, conflict-free. There is no conflict in heaven, church. There is no battle of wills in heaven. I know some folks who will want God to have a suggestion box in heaven, But that's not the case. That's not going to happen. There will not be conflict in heaven. There will not be persecution there. And furthermore, the time for conflict is significantly brief compared to an eternity of comfort and perfect fellowship. Let me give you some examples of that from the Word of God. Here's what Peter explains this future comfort. He says in 1 Peter 1 verses 3 through 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. See, the same thing that Jesus is talking about here. The future aspect of our salvation ready to be revealed in the end time. Now, Paul, who visited heaven, writes this and brings us great comfort under inspiration of the Holy Spirit here in Romans 8, verse 18. I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Furthermore, he writes in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 through 18. And by the way, when he was writing 2 Corinthians, he was writing to our church that was against him, a church that was accusing him of all kinds of stuff. And he writes this to that church. Our momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but things which are not seen are eternal. And furthermore, he writes this back to Romans. Now, chapter 5, verses 3 and 5, we rejoice. Listen to this, church. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. 
And notice the sequence here. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that sufferings produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us. All of us who are believers in Christ, born again, members of the kingdom of heaven, experience that every time we go through tribulation, whether it's self-inflicted or not, whether it's global or local, whether caused by your bad decisions or caused by somebody else's bad decisions. We experience this. Why? Because we have the Holy Spirit in us. Therefore, we have the biblical perspective on this. Comfort abides. Let me give you a visual representation of all of this from the Word of God. A concrete picture here of an abstract idea. When John describes our eternal home, you remember that from the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verses 3 and 4. He says this, Behold, and he's quoting God. He says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among the people, and he will dwell among them, and they will, shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. In other words, church, conflict and hardship are temporary for the believer in Christ. Now, for the non-believer in Christ, hardship will be forever, unfortunately, and tragically. But if you are a born-again member of God's family through salvation in Jesus Christ, my friend, comfort abides in you. You should embrace the dangers of serving Him faithfully, confident that His enabling grace will equip you to endure. Don't think it's strange that you're finding hardship. It's the normal process, and it's an indication you're being faithful. Now, let me make a disclaimer here again. We need to differentiate between true persecution and self-inflicted conflict. There's a difference between those two, okay? In other words, you should always ask God when you're facing conflict Always ask God to show you the real cause of the conflict. Now, if you're yelling at your husband or you're at your wife and you're experiencing conflict, it's because of your own harshness. That's because you need to change, because you're of your own self-centeredness. Now, if you are disobedient to your parents and you're experiencing conflict, that is good. You need to be disciplined. When you don't follow biblical standards or when you refuse to give a particular sin issue, God may put you in a crisis until you address the problem. I have seen it over and over again. I have experienced it in my own life. But look at the final warning here in verse 23. There's a final warning here. Jesus gives them perfect instructions about how the disciples should respond to persecution. And again, here's another evidence that his instruction extends beyond the lifetime of the 12. Because he's talking about the time of the second coming of Christ here. There are two reasons for that. First one is this. Jesus validates the human need for self-preservation. It's a, it's a human need that we have when he says, whenever they persecute you, one city flee to the next. Of course you're going to do that. You don't want to die. I mean, of course, if people are going to kill you for your faithfulness to Christ, let it be for his honor and for his glory. But don't invite persecution. There is no virtue in desiring martyrdom. Now, martyrdom may be a byproduct of faithfulness, but it shouldn't be the goal. If it happens to you, then that's God's calling on your life. But you shouldn't be worshiping martyrdom. That's self-centered. Once again, the shrewdness of a serpent would serve his disciples well. They would need wisdom to shut down operations in the particular city and move on once they conclude that, okay, these folks are done. There's no need for us to to spend any more time in here because not only they're not going to hear the message, they're going to start killing us. So flee to the next is what he's saying. But secondly, the 12 disciples here may not have canvassed all the cities of Israel, but during the tribulation period of the end times, missionary activity in the land of Israel will abound. Specifically, there will be 12,000 Jews from each tribe of Israel proclaiming the gospel 
according to Revelation 7, verses 4 through 8. So in other words, they'll pick up the baton here. But in the meantime, church, I want you to know that you and I live in a period between the two events of Christ. So it is our job to proclaim the kingdom of heaven in every nation. We are under that commission. Now, it is not a walk in a park. It is hard work. It's costly. It costs us money to send missionaries around the world. It costs us comfort to go. It costs us anxiety, and it takes faith. And sometimes it's discouraging, and it's lonely. But one day, we will have eternity to rest. In the meantime, we have plenty to do. Until he calls us home or until the Son of Man comes, we are commissioned to be messengers of the kingdom of heaven. Faithfulness to Christ costs, but it's worth every sacrifice. Why? Because of the hope and the comfort that he provides to they far outweigh the hardship and the conflict of ministry. Yes, it's hard to follow Christ. Yes, there will be conflict, but the hope and the comfort that he gives us, I repeat this as often as I can, don't ask me to explain the peace that I experience in Christ when I am facing conflict and hardship because of ministry. Because I can't explain it. The Bible says it transcends all understanding. You have to experience it for yourself. But you need to do that by coming to Christ. Friend, if you do not come to Christ, you will experience the greatest and the most tragic conflict of your life forever and ever. And that is total separation from God. And again, Total separation from God is not party, rock and roll, and drugs 24-7. It's agony. It's pain. It's darkness. It's a guilty conscience forever and ever that God will allow people who have rejected Christ to experience because of the fact that they tried to make it right on their own. They tried to make it to heaven on their own. The Bible is very clear about that. There is no other way to experience true peace but by coming to Christ. You need to take care of that today. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. And we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth with Grace.